Hello. Bonjour. Bonjour. Ciao. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Fertility Solutions Podcast. We're delighted you've joined us to learn more about various aspects of fertility from highly respected and experienced experts within the field. My name is Steve Levitt and I'm the Director of Clinical Application at Cooper Surgical Fertility Solutions. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Kazem Nouri uh, and Dr. Jason Swain. Another point that um, we've discussed uh, at length over the last few years in the in the IVF field, and that's freeze-all strategies, um, relating obviously to, uh, to the endometrium, the introduction of vitrification, uh, which gives us much more confidence that um, the embryos will will survive perfectly well in in, in the uh, cryopreservation uh, strategy. So, what are what are your opinions? And I'll ask both of you uh, this about um, uh, whether we should be even thinking about doing uh, freeze alls for uh, all of our patients uh, with regard to um, outcome, of course, and endometrium in in particular. Well, it's a very good question. You know, uh, we had like four years ago, uh, titled one of the very interesting publication, Freeze All, Time for All. Uh, so the idea is, uh, because we have on one hand the whole stimulation, we have high estrogen concentrations, and um, there are also some publications indicating that uh, High estrogen levels can also lead to more exouterine gravidity. So the idea is uh, that maybe we wait till the whole simulation is away and we put the embryo back in a situation that the body of the patient is not under that much concentrations of her own hormones, in this case, estrogens. But still, um, I think... We need more data. We need much more data. Imagine what all we know is the last 42 years. I mean, the first IVF baby, Louis Brown, was born in 1978. It's now, well, let's see, 43 years. And all we know about IVF children, our, our knowledge is 43 years old. So it's about the fresh embryo transfer. Our knowledge regarding frozen embryo transfer is not that old. I would say the first IVF baby born after frozen embryo transfer is something between uh, in the last years, 10 to 20 years. I, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly when it happened, but it's not that old. So right now as a clinician, I am not ready to go for freezeal and perform the embryo transfer than in a frozen cycle. Right now, I still stick to indications for freeze-all. One of the indications here, for example, if you have uh, the danger of OHSS, I think right now we are, we are moving towards OHSS-free clinic. As you know, we have uh, early onset OHSS, we have late onset OHSS, we can avoid early onset OHSS with using agonists instead of uh, HCG in triggering and performing the final follicular maturation. 
this is true of course but if you if you transfer the embryo you cannot avoid the late onset uh, OHSS which happen after the day 9 of the retrieval and is the result of uh, body's own HCG, human chronic pregnancy, the, the pregnancy hormone, which lead to uh, OHSS. So in these cases, I think now in 21st century, there is no excuse for OHSS. And these are exactly the points. That means if you see a, any danger of OHSS, you perform freeze-all. Then if you have teen atrometrium, you perform a freeze-all. There are other indications that you have to, from the medical point of view, that you have to perform a freeze-all. For example, oncofertility, sometimes in endometriosis cases, sometimes during the uh, uh, stimulation, you see polyps, which you haven't seen before. Uh, before you started with stimulation. So my answer to your question would be, no, I'm not ready to move towards freeze-all. I just forget to mention the uh, pre-implantation diagnostic, which make uh, freezing of the embryos necessary. Actually, one of the most important indications for that. So again, the answer would be to my opinion, for me personally, right now in the year 2021, uh, we have indications for freeze-all. I want to stick to these indications, but really, really um, be a little bit more relaxed with these indications. I'll give you an example, but 20 years ago, sometimes we had to perform the embryos. We have to perform the embryo transfer even though we knew that there is a chance that the patient get OHSS, but at that time, vitrification 21 years ago, 22 years ago, was not that good comparing to the time now. So sometimes you had to go through this risk after uh, talking to the patient, explain her everything, but thanks God the tale has changed. We have good vitrification term, uh, indications and good in, uh, vitrifications uh, methods so that now we can offer these possibilities to the patients. Great. Uh, a, very, uh, a very common approach and, and certainly moving towards personalized uh, medicine, that, that seems to be uh, fitting in well with that. Jason, from an embryology point of view, uh, freeze-all strategy, is it something you see in your um, experience within the, the field in, in the U.S. or in other other places as well? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I, uh, I'm i a bit biased in that we are big proponents of the freeze-all strategy. Uh, we do that uh, commonly the vast majority of our cycles in our 11 centers. Uh, and that's largely tied to uh, what was mentioned. Uh, we do a lot of PGTA. And so because of that, uh, we do mostly frozen blood transfers. Uh, that being said, uh, I think most labs, if not all labs, uh, obviously are comfortable doing frozen embryo transfers. Um, they're usually surplus embryos. So, you know, I think the question really comes down to, do you do the one fresh transfer uh, or do you jump in feet first and do them all as frozen embryo transfers? And there's a lot of considerations there, obviously, in terms of scheduling and and, and money and, and things like that. So it's certainly not an easy decision. Uh, but 
you know, we, we all are doing at least some level of frozen embryo transfer. So in terms of, you know, offspring health and some of the other topics that come up, uh, you know, I, I don't know how overly relevant those are, um, considering most of us are doing frozen embryo transfers. And it's really just whether we want to do that initial transfer as a fresh transfer uh, or uh, do them all as, as frozen. And, and as mentioned, s- several examples of why uh, there may be clinical decisions as to why they would all be frozen for OHSS, PGTA, any number of reasons. And so I would say that that uh, paramount uh, in whether a clinic or a lab is going to uh, move into a freeze-all approach or, or even just to optimize their current frozen embryo transfer approaches, you need to make sure you can grow the embryos uh, well. Uh, and even if you don't choose to grow embryos to the blastocyst stage, your lab should be able to grow embryos to the blastocyst stage, really is, a, is an indicator of the quality of your culture system and showing that you are uh, able to culture good quality, healthy embryos. Uh, and then you need to validate your vitrification and importantly, warming program. And so even if you do do frozen uh, uh, transfers and fresh transfers, compare your, your outcomes, uh, do a simple data analysis, uh, trying to control for things like patient uh, demographics and embryo quality, and your frozen embryo transfer rates should be at least as good, perhaps better uh, than your frozen. And that's something that we do routinely. We will uh, take our handful of fresh transfers. We, we do have some patients who opt for fresh transfer compare the outcomes to our uh, frozen embryo transfers, and then compare those to our PGTA frozen embryo transfers. And the idea is that if we see any discrepancies, that could give us some insight as to uh, potential issues. Uh, is it our freeze-thaw approach, or is it our biopsy and genetics approach, or could it be the, the uterine environment? Um, and so uh, our data indicates that there is a, um, uh, uh, an increase in outcomes as you move from a fresh embryo transfer to a frozen embryo transfer to a PGTA frozen embryo transfer, which is, I, I think, what you would like to see if everything is optimized. So that's a very easy exercise to go through and, and do that. And so, you know, I think there's room for both. We certainly don't mandate freeze-all cycles for everybody. We do do a handful each year and we get uh, people pregnant. But uh, in our paradigm and, and others, uh, freeze-all approach uh, obviously makes sense. Exactly. This is a very interesting thing. If the lab functions well, this is exactly what you see in the lab. The, the, the three strategies and the pregnancy rate, I can just uh, emphasize how beautiful you de- described it and it's fully true. But from the clinical point of view, Jason, there's also another thing that means the patients. Um, I don't say that there is always a problem. I mean, it is always very important how you talk with the patients, how are they prepared uh, if you have a freeze-all at the end of the day. But at least most of the patients come in with the idea that they are going to have a fresh transfer. So it's, for some of them, frustrating that they go home with a freeze-all. I have to say um, there are different rules and there are different uh, laws in different countries. For example, in Austria, we are not allowed to perform TOBI, trophic to them biopsy in order to perform pre-implantation diagnostic. It is allowed since 2015 only for special cases. 
for example, after three abortions, for example, after three failed implantations. So it's, um, it's not that we are the overwhelming of our cycles, the patients are having PGDA, just the opposite. That means it's less and less and less. So hopefully they get pregnant. But if you want to have a, a freeze-all policy in your clinic for all the patients, I think it's very important. This is what I wanted to mention. This is very important that the patients know what's going to be done. So it's nothing more frustrating for the patients than to stimulate, give injections, have the retrieval, and now she's ready to get the embryo, the result of her old, uh, you know, troubles and problems uh, and injections and retrievals. This the result is the day five embryo transfer. So if you say, well, thank you, but we cannot give the embryo back because of this and that, it's very frustrating. So what I want to tell in this case as a clinician is very important that the patients are prepared in their mind for the possibility of result. It's very important. Yeah, it's an important point. And I think, as we all know, managing our patients' expectations is, is a key part in, uh, in, in the job that we do. Um, it was a, there was a debate at uh, at Etra actually on the very subject of, of freeze alls, and um, many of the papers that were cited were used by both um, sides of the uh, of the debate of whether we should or shouldn't do a, a freeze all uh, strategy. And um, at the end, the, the conclusion came: well, ultimately, if you don't believe in frozen transfers, and there were some arguments about uh, the neonatal outcomes from from frozen embryo transfers. In essence, all you're doing is one extra fresh transfer in one arm as opposed to doing all frozen. It's not that those people who do fresh transfers don't go on to do frozen transfers as well. So I guess the debate will rage uh, and we we need more data um, eventually to, to help us decide. But um, from, a, from an embryology point of view, Jason, how has that changed your working practices, your day-to-day uh, -day embryology moving to a, a freeze-all strategy. I think that's something that uh, people might be interested um, and how that has changed over the last few years as you've um, introduced it into your practice. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, like I think most embryologists would, would agree that uh, it certainly hasn't lessened our workload. Uh, as new technology comes out in the laboratory, uh, there seem to be more things for us to do within the laboratory. So uh, biopsy, because our freeze-all is tied to PGTA, uh, we have a lot of additional work uh, in terms of the biopsy, the tubing, and then having to freeze all of those embryos. And, and so on the surface, uh, I don't know that just comparing you know, a freeze-all to a, a fresh transfer approach uh, adds too much work because, again, most labs are freezing at least some supernumerary embryos, even if doing uh fresh transfer, but there would be a handful of cases that only had one or two embryos to transfer fresh and may not have anything left to freeze. Uh, so, you know, slight incremental increase in number of cases frozen there. But if you then tie that to uh, the other technology, like I said, PGTA, um, certainly a, uh, uh, an increase in workload for us. And then what that means then is also making sure that your lab is laid out uh, appropriately and that you have the equipment uh, to do those uh 
freezes and warms. And again, most labs should have that because they're doing at least some level of frozen embryo transfer. Uh, but you may have to get an additional hood or think about your workflow and space and your personnel staffing and, and schedule and timing because that means a lot, uh, a lot of pulling embryos in the morning to warm, getting them in the incubator um, a couple hours before that transfer. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's certainly a, a something that has to be considered uh, for multiple aspects uh, as well as within the lab in terms of the impact on the day-to-day staffing levels, equipping, uh, and, and the workflows to make it work seamlessly. From the clinical point of view, uh, we are not allowed to forget the very important publications in 2019 um, from Y et al. in Lancet 2019 that we have uh, with uh, frozen embryo transfer, uh, 3.1% preeclampsia with fresh embryo transfer, 1.0% eclampsia, more or less the same data uh, in the same year by Hoenig et al., so we also cons- we should also know that uh, right now there is this debate. So we have also to think about the pregnancy. And of course, at the end of the day, we'll, if we talk uh, about the babies with fresh embryo transfer, we have more premature birth, low birth weight, and small progestational age. Uh, whereas with frozen embryo transfer, we have large progestational age, and macrosomia. So, but you know, this is one publication, second publication, third publication. So in this regard, frozen embryo transfer and fresh embryo transfer, I think we still need a lot of data. Also in, in, in terms of the pregnancy, in terms of the babies afterward. Yeah, the other thing I would ask from a clinical point of view is what about time to pregnancy? Is that something that, that patients bring up? Of course, if you go to a frozen cycle, it, it does uh, it may only delay things by a couple of months. But is that a topic that, that comes to light when you're discussing these sort of strategies with patients? Well, I have to correct you. It, uh, for example, if you perform a freeze-all for OHSS, as a matter of fact, we start right after the next period. That means on the day of retrieval, we seize all the medications. We wait for the period and for the menstruation. And uh, on day one or two of the menstruation, we check ultrasound, we check the blood. And if we don't have any signs of OHSS, is everything is fine, which actually in 95% of the cases is the case, then we start right after this with, with uh, cryo protocol and uh, kit cryo embryo transfer, which would be a postponing of only three to four weeks and not three to four months. So in this term, we talk about this uh, with a patient. And again, who are these patients? These are the patients with PCO. These are the patients with AMH higher than uh, 5 NGML. These are the patients with previous OHS team, young patients. So from the beginning, uh, we tell these patients, we clarify that, look, we might end up in freeze-all, but don't worry. If everything is fine, the embryo transfer will take place four weeks later. 
Sure. Uh, and as you uh, mentioned before, uh, managing expectation is uh, is key. And if it's only a, a few weeks, then uh, of course that's not going to have um, any uh, major uh, impact on on them, I suspect. Um, I'm going to ask both of you just to um, peer into your crystal ball uh, and just have a look a little bit into the future and see if anything you can envisage might change, anything you would like to see change that would help you uh, improve the um, embryo transfer uh, success or technique in, in any way. Um, and perhaps I, I, I know it's putting you on the spot a little bit, Jason, but perhaps uh, if I can ask you first um, if, if there is anything that you would like to see change or, or if you could change it um, would, that would help from an embryology point of view. Yeah, uh, uh, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think uh, media, perhaps. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I've certainly discussed with others in the past, uh, you know, in addition to hyaluronin, are there other additives that we could perhaps add? And, and certainly there's literature that has, has worked towards that end with adding things like HCG or, or other factors to, to media. So, you know, growth factors or others. Are Is there something we can add to the media that, uh, can help improve implantation or, or uterine receptivity. So I think that will be an active area of research um, and is an active area of research. And hopefully we can make some progress there. Uh, and then, you know, in terms of a, of a technology, uh, you know, you had, you had mentioned this with Dr. Schoolcraft's quote, uh, the number of transfer catheter really hasn't changed much uh, in decades. So, you know, we, we do have some evolution uh, in terms of, uh, some of them now being echogenic, um, some some novel kind of outer sheaths and, and things. And so, you know, is there something we could do there? And I'm just thinking about, uh, you know, that recent publication in RBM Online from Nick Macklin and Allison Campbell and others talking about, you know, how fast that temperature can drop at the tip of an embryo transfer catheter. So is there something novel that we can do to, you know, improve the ability to pass that catheter, to visualize that catheter, you know, to avoid mucus and, 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 and things like that, retained embryos. And, and there are designs that, that uh, uh, are, are in play to address all of those, but perhaps to uh, improve environmental stability, temperature stability. Um, so, uh, and then going all the way up up the, the line, so to speak, to the, the syringe. You know, we're using TB syringes and, and uh, you know, can we kind of re-engineer, um, make it a, a bit uh, more consistent, uh, more control, uh, maybe address some of the variations that we see between protocols. So, uh, you know, those are just some kind of low-hanging fruit, some some basic ideas. I don't think anything revolutionary. I, I think, um, you know, getting a good quality embryo and having a receptive uterus uh, are the two main issues. And I think that's where um, a lot of the research really will come and a lot of the progress will come. But it is some of those little nuances that the, you know, can give us incremental improvement and help ultimately improve the overall uh, outcome for everybody. Uh, great. And, and Kazem, uh, anything that you'd like to see from a, a clinical point of view? I think you'd endorse all those things that, uh, that Jason had just mentioned. Of course, I agree with all of them. But from clinical point of view, we still, uh, we are, most of the process in uh, processes uh, during the embryo transfer is not standardized. What what I what I mean is, for example, we talk about the velocity. The term I use for my fellows uh, is uh, 
uh, well, I say the word in German, uh, that means perform the embryo transfer with feeling. So <laughs> what does it mean? That means uh, not very, not with your power, but also not that slow that embryo doesn't come out. So I would, I would love to have a special situation that we have a standard method for embryo transfer for everybody. As a matter of fact, there are some publications regarding special catheters uh, in which you have the, the velocity standardized, you have the value uh, in a standard. So maybe this is in future, but right now there are only one or two publications. Wonderful. Well, it's always good to look forward uh, and to um, to keep making those marginal gains that, that will help more of our patients achieve their, their ultimate goal. Uh, so in uh, in that regard, I think um, time has, has beaten us. Um, we could probably talk for, for many more minutes about um, embryo transfer, but I would really like to thank, uh, thank both of you, uh, Kazem and Jason, uh, for your contribution today. I think it's an incredibly important topic. And as you rightly said right at the end, Kazem, I think if we could uh, achieve some standard uh, practices um, and, and some standardized uh, equipment that we could use to help us, that would be, uh, would be great. And thank you to everyone that's um, tuned in to this episode of uh, Fertility Insights. Uh, please like, uh, share and comment uh, if you would like to. Uh, that will help us and, and make sure to tune in uh, to our future episodes.